0: Chad, Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins, weekdays at 6 on 6.30 Chad. (laughs) Edmonton's home for breaking news on your favorite teams. Now, Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins, on the voice of your Oilers and Eskimos, 6.30 Chad.
1: has uh, kicked a 46-yard field goal. Ottawa up 23-21 on BC with just 2.12 to go. But uh, the Lions putting together a bit of a drive here just now inside the 30-yard line. As uh, Mandy Arsenault on a short pass breaking three tackles to get down the right sideline. So now BC Right back in field goal range. Good back and forth game tonight between the Lions and the Red Blacks. Of course, tomorrow night right here on 630. Chad pregame show at six. The game will start at eight. It's your Edmonton Eskimos taking on the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. They hooked up for a classic back in week uh, three. It was the second game of the season for both teams. The Eskimos uh, went through a bit of a rough patch. They appear to be doing a little better, back up to 500. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders got a a win a couple of weeks after that over Ottawa, and since then it's been, well, quite miserable on and off the field. Jamie Nye covers the Riders on a daily basis. Jamie, I'm I'm not saying that to be a troll. I, I look at it as a miserable last month for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. How do you see it?
2: Yeah, miserable might be nice, actually, Reed. On <laughs> uh, where this, where this atrocious is that, uh, god awful. That could be a, a term you, you use when you talk about the Riders. It has been uh, the last four games; uh, it, they've been outscored thirty-seven to nine on average. That is per game they allow thirty-seven points per game and have only scored nine per game over their last four. That is how bad it's been, and they've lost like $75,000 worth of fines to the Canadian Football League over that span as well. So that has been about as bad a month as you can find in the Canadian Football League.
1: Let's start with the off-field stuff. You mentioned the fines. Um, you know, the, the whole thing with the uh, players being... Uh, and You know what, Jamie? I'm going to put you back on hold. I'm just, uh, just going to play this here. About tomorrow's football game.
2: Go ahead. Coach, what what led you to believe that you were, now that it's a violation,
1: that you were doing something that you believed was right? Anything on tomorrow's game, guys? All right, so that was back on August 12th after Chris Jones read a statement about the fines and then said, don't ask me about the fines. Uh, You tried to ask a question about what happened. I mean, it was a little quiet there, but basically, Jamie, you were saying what made you... Po- I mean, in my mind, you were basically saying what possibly made you think you could get away with this?
2: <laughs> uh, trying to ask it as polite as possible, yeah, on, on uh, that. And there are many other questions uh, I, I could have asked them uh, after that statement, as in, you have you worked out a dozen players after each and every practice that weren't under contract everywhere else you've been? Is, is that what you're trying to say? Um, were you paying the players that you were working out that were, have been here for four or five weeks or so? Um, but they're all questions that Craig Reynolds, the president and the CEO, had to answer, and I don't think he was the guy that needed to answer those questions. Uh, it is the vice president of football operations and general manager that need to answer those questions, and he w- wasn't willing to do it. And uh, there, there are some fans who are on his side and think I'm an idiot for... A- after he told you not to ask questions, how dare you ask a question? Well, sorry, he's the guy that needs to answer all the questions that needed to be asked, and I don't really care who tells me I can't ask a question when you call in the, uh, the media We can ask whatever questions we want. It's up to you to whether or not you want to answer them. Uh, And he doesn't, so be it. Uh, We'll see how this plays out. Uh, I'm not sure the league is quite done chatting with the riders about their process quite yet, but as of now, this is where we stand on the the workout players and all the off-field stuff.
1: Uh, I mean, we, we had you on last year, and, and it went bad for the Riders last year. And, uh, I mean, you spoke very candidly on this show about how you kind of felt Corey Chamberlain had had changed and, and become arrogant and had maybe just sort of lost control, not just of the team, but maybe even of himself. What, what's, what's your view now of Chris Jones? Because I still think he's a good coach. Um, but clearly, he's, he's made some mistakes. He, there, there's clearly a lot of changes, and, and Dave Campbell asked him here today about that affecting the, the continuity. But uh, you know, now that all this has happened and the wins haven't been there, what's your, your assessment of Jones?
2: I think Chris Jones is a, a great coach. His resume speaks for himself. Uh, like, there's no question of Chris Jones' coaching ability but this is the first time he has ever been given everything. VP of football operations has never been a job he's had before. General manager has never been a job in the Canadian football league he's had before. So he is a rookie at all of this, and I think that he's going through some rookie growing pains on, okay, learning what I can do roster-wise. The ratio fine is another big thing that, you have to be mindful of every moment of every game because clearly the other coaches and the other teams are going to start calling you out as they have teams complained about the ratio with the, with Chris Jones and they investigated it. Teams complained BC and Toronto saw some of these practices. The Riders had at Taylor field, Mosaic stadium and called the league and said, there's something fishy going on. Uh, And uh, that, that you'll be called out on it if you start bending the rules. And I think Chris Jones doesn't have an Ed Hervey or a Jim Barker or a John Huffnagel to give him the players, and he gets to coach them. Now he has to pick the players and coach them and manage them and manage the salaries and everything else. I think this is just a rookie general manager more than a bad coach.
1: Uh, all right. So the, huge. I mean, you mentioned the average score. What did you say it was? Thirty-six-nine. Last four games. Thirty-seven to nine. The last four. And the last one was was fifty-three-seven. I made a comment that, to me, and look, if I eat my words tomorrow, fine. I'll eat my words. But I can only say what I see. That the Riders appear to be a less dangerous team than they were coming here in uh, in week three. I, I think that's that, that's
2: fair. Um, the, the one the one thing about that is they have not traveled well out east. They got smacked in Montreal and they got smacked again in Hamilton. Uh, so is it preparation? Is it the long travel uh, out east that has been weighing in? But every single game, I I think they've taken on a western opponent. They've they played them tight. Uh, Calgary and BC kind of look like blowouts, but those were a lot of fourth quarter big games by the Stampeders and Lions. So I think the Riders will be respectable tomorrow. I don't think they're going to win, but I think it's going to be a closer, you know, 10-point loss, something like that, rather than what we've seen of late, which is two or three score differences.
1: All right. Uh, I mean, what's what's the sense from from the players? And I mean, I guess you've dealt with a lot of different players, given some of the, the roster turnover. Sometimes you get that sense where, you know, where there's a little bit of frustration or hopelessness setting in, how do you feel the players handling some of these losses?
2: Uh, I think the players are actually quite positive. We talked to a lot of players this week uh, just about that. Uh, compare this time last year when you're 0-8 to this time year 1-7, and 7, and even Fred Bennett, who just arrived uh, last week, noted that the the optimism in the locker room and how everybody's getting along, he was... Kind of taken aback by it. Actually, thinking you know, I'm walking into a one and seventeen. There's going to be infighting. There's going to be guys frustrated, yelling, screaming. They're still. Chris Jones still has this team believing in the process of what it's going to take to to build a winner and be a part of the solution rather than the problem. And, and I think that's where again it shows Chris Jones is a pretty darn good coach and is pretty good at motivating players. And now it's just about the personnel of this team getting the right people in the right spots and then the wins will come. It's a pretty positive group. Last year, you could tell they were just waiting for it to end. Uh, This year, it it doesn't feel like that at all.
1: All right. Well, it's going to be interesting tomorrow night. It's always fun when these two teams play, and clearly judging by the last game, it's uh, usually unpredictable. BC's up 29-23 on uh, Ottawa. This has been a good game tonight, a minute and a half left, Jamie. I know you're probably watching that one. So thank you so much for making time for us tonight, and enjoy the tilt tomorrow. Absolutely. You too, read anytime. That is Jamie and I checking in from Regina, CJME Radio. He hosts the Green Zone, and a uh, tough couple seasons here for the Riders. If they do turn it around, let's hope it doesn't start tomorrow night. The Blue Jays have lost 6-3 to the Angels. Boston lost earlier today, so the Jays tied for first place in the American League East with the Red Sox. Baltimore won't benefit from that. They lose 4-0 to the Nationals, and uh, they stay a game behind all right inside sports on 630 Chad, you can always text us at 630 630 the phone number 780-496-0063 bob nicholson was on oilers now earlier today we'll get to some more of those comments when we get back
0: This is Cam Talbot from your Edmonton Oilers, and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio 630 Ched.
1: So some other news and notes today. Sidney Crosby will be Canada's captain at the upcoming World Cup of Hockey. It starts on September 15th. We'll be bringing you some games right here on 630 Ched. The Colorado Avalanche have hired Jared Bednar as their new head coach. He uh, won the Calder Cup in the AHL with Lake Erie this season. He's 44 years old. Of course, Patrick Ross suddenly resigned a couple of weeks ago. Trade today in the National Hockey League is an interesting one. Florida sends Dave Boland and Lawson Crouse to Arizona for a third-round pick in 2017 and a conditional second-rounder in 2018. Uh, Dave Boland could very well spend this season on long-term injured reserve. Lawson Crouse, the 11th overall pick in the 2015 draft, so he gets traded before he even plays a game in the National Hockey League. And it looks like B.C. is going to hold off Ottawa here in the final minute to win 29-23, they just stopped the third-down gamble by uh, the Red Blacks. 35 seconds left, so BC can run out the clock. The Lions will go to 6-3. and three. Ottawa will uh, drop to 4-4-1. Four, four All right. Inside Sports on 630. Chad, we have Oilers now with Bob Stoffer every day from noon to 2 on the station. He had Bob Nicholson in studio for an hour today, and Nicholson was commenting on uh, the changes to the Oilers hockey operations staff and uh, how the uh, breakdown of responsibilities kind of works.
3: Let me start right at the top, uh, you know, uh, with Daryl Cates. And this was something that was very uh, clear with Daryl and myself when I took over as, uh, as CEO a year ago that, uh, you know, reporting to myself was Peter Shirelli, along with Susan Darrington, Daryl Bozenkuhls, Stu McDonald, uh, the executive group. Uh, And, you know, Daryl has really um, respected that. Uh, You know, I talk to Daryl all the time. Uh, The other executives don't, including Peter Shirelli. There's, he certainly speaks with him, but always, you know, with my knowledge. So it really gets uh, the structure in place. And... uh, I can tell you the day that we hired Peter Shirelli, We talked, first of all, who does he want as coach, and we're really uh, pleased that we ended up with the guy we got, Todd McClellan. Right. But we talked about other management people. The number one person that he had was Keith Gretzky. Okay. We knew, hey, Keith Gretzky's under contract with the Boston Bruins, and, you know, whether we'd ever get him, we didn't know. And so this summer, when uh, we asked for permission to talk uh, to Keith uh, through the Boston Bruins, and they gave us that uh, green light that was a huge step in you know really filling out uh, Peters uh, hockey management group uh, Keith is gonna be the key guy for Uh, Peter, as he goes forward. Craig McTavish is part of that. Uh, uh, Craig will be doing a lot with the pro um, scouting and in that area. But Peter's got a really unique way that he's going to roll this out. I'm going to leave that for Peter to talk to the media. There's going to be crossover with all of his top people, but he's going to have really clear of who leads that, and I think it's really going to help us. And I have total confidence in Peter. You know, we talk all the time, and it's... uh, uh, going to really clarify how we work uh, starting this year and there's the adjustments of how we did last year on Kevin Lowe just, everyone always asks me "What? where is Kevin Lowe? C- Kevin Lowe is a vice chair my title is CEO vice chair uh, Kevin reports into myself and then we would uh, talk uh, with Daryl Kevin talks with Daryl but Kevin doesn't work day to day although I-, I can tell you Kevin Lowe has been unbelievable to me when we have executive meetings, he's there all the time. Anything that, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure of. I bounce off Kevin, uh, whether it's business, community, hockey, foundation, and uh, he's just been a great-sounding board for me, and he'll be there doing that as long as I'm in this position.
2: Is it fair to say, like, I mean, he was almost exclusively in a hockey ops role now. he ha- He's been doing much more on the business side over the last
0: six months. Is that a...?
3: Yeah, he's been doing... I wouldn't just say business like you see in the foundation side right uh, you know he he, he's doing you know i look at my agenda and i go go put my hand up and i say say, hey kevin i need some help and he's right there to help out no matter what it is uh he certainly talks to peter uh you know we've got a great resource there uh but uh kevin has just been uh, so good to myself and so good to the organization if you talk to the new staff or Um, Some of the executive, he's been there just to support him in any way he can.
1: All right. So interesting answer, I thought, from Bob Nicholson. That was uh, earlier today. Bob was in studio with Stauffer on uh, Oilers Now. The the question really was, uh, Bob said, you know, a lot of people are asking what uh, Kevin Lowe's role is, and Bob said, well, let me break down how this all works. And what I'm hearing there is that Peter Shirelli has A lot of control along with Bob Nicholson and I think it's also indicative of really what a massive overhaul they are trying to take the Oilers organization through Um, you know and he said Keith Gretzky brought in his assistant general manager a guy Shirelli worked with in Boston and he said I want on my staff And eventually they they were able to do that. As much as everybody would like an immediate turnaround, probably not realistic. And now something that, I mean, I think Shirelli is doing this in steps. I know everybody would like them to get better immediately, given how long they've been this bad. 10 years out of the playoffs, most of those distantly out of the playoffs. Um, I think Shirelli's doing this in steps both on and off the ice. He's made priorities. He's tried to cross the big things off first and and then get along to other things um, on the list. And he's getting more and more of his people in place. Off the ice, Keith Gretzky. On the ice, players like Milan Lucic, Adam Larson, all those types of things. Cam Talbot last summer. So we'll see if it works. Um, again, probably an indication of how much of an overhaul the, the fran really the entire franchise needed. And I think Nicholson and Shirelli are pretty much driving the buses on this and, and getting support when needed from the you know, the people they think our best to give it to them we'll see how it goes uh, interesting to me to follow that along you can text 630 630 mosey says losing hall for a potential top two d-man hurts but i think it will help on many levels what bothers me is that guys like nugent hopkins and leon dreisaitl are being overlooked i hope nuge has a career year and from what we've seen leon could be an incredible good number two centerman that's from Mozi. And uh, this texter says, of course, this person didn't sign their name. Am I the only one with the hockey season getting very close that is disgusted by the amount of CFL talk? Get it together, please. I assume I'm not the only one. Once in a while is fine, but judging from the lack of attendance, nobody really cares, and I don't think you can change that by yapping about them over and over. Okay, buddy. Two segments tonight with a game tomorrow. You know what? You know what? Hang on. You know what that texture is?
0: Turkey of the
3: night. (laughs) This
0: is Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Edmonton Sports Leader. 630 Chad.
1: All right, thanks for tuning in tonight. In this half hour, we're going to bring you Glenroy Gilbert. He's the coach of Canada's 4x100 relay teams, including the men's team that was able to pick up a uh, medal. In Brazil, after that U.S. disqualification, that was pretty wild in the relay last weekend. And of course, Gilbert, 20 years ago, was part of the gold medal winning relay team at the Atlanta Olympics. Reed Wilkins with you. Thanks a lot for tuning in tonight. Uh, we got Jared on the open line, 780 496 0063. Hey, Jared. How's it going, Reed? I'm doing great.
0: Thank you for calling. Um, you know, there's all this talk about all these analytics, and, and I'm pretty in hockey, and I'm very skeptical about it because in 1996, I saw Lemieux play in Edmonton. Okay. And every time the faceoff was in the offensive zone, Lemieux was on the ice. When it was in the defensive zone, Ron Francis took it. Right. And every time the puck crossed center ice into the defensive zone, Lemieux went off and Francis went on. So Lemieux and Jagger never actually played in the defensive zone. So their possession time or offensive zone times look great because they never actually play in the defensive zone. And so I, the, my worry is that players can be almost like eliminated from the NHL because of the fact they like can, can construct this framework of these statistics based on all these things where a player maybe has something else to offer. But because of the analytics, they don't even get a chance to, uh, to get like a goalie with the size thing now. He may have a lot to offer, but they have basic guidelines. And even in the mid-'90s, they had certain things that they would look for, like in junior players' size and everything, and players can get eliminated before they even get a chance.
1: Well, it's funny you bring up Ron Francis because he was a pretty good offensive player too when he got the chance, wasn't he? You're, you obviously remember him. Yeah, uh, he was He was very good. But I was saying, in a sense, like
0: I was a huge Lemieux fan. Yeah, But it kind of was uh, a bit of a disappointment to see that he only played – on the one side of the ice and I know Gretzky was like that a little bit and some other players were but it was very very obvious that it was always Ron Francis on the defensive side and Lemieux on the offensive
4: side of the puck.
1: Jared d- do you have a minute here because I want to play you a clip and I have to put you on hold to do it and then I want to bring you back in after is that cool because I think you're like you want this. Me,
0: you want me to call back? No
1: stay I'm going to put you on hold you'll be able to hear the radio station okay. and then I'll bring you back in okay. Sure. Okay, so he's, uh, Jared's commenting on analytics and hockey. I want to play this. Uh, it was, this was on Oilers Now with Bob back at the end of July. And then I used this clip on my show, and it's Bill Peters of the Carolina Hurricanes commenting on analytics. Here we go.
5: Well, analytics are here to stay, so you better embrace them. You better be in the, you know, the modern game and be current. I think it's more of a management tool than it is a coaching tool. I like it, and what it does for our organization is Eric will do studies and he'll do all these projects, and what they do is they provoke thought. So he comes in and presents to us as coaches, and it provokes conversation and meaningful thought, and it might open up some ideas or some solutions. And I have no problem dialing up his extension saying, hey, I need you to come down and for 20 minutes and explain something to us and show us what you're you're doing here and then after that 20 minutes he he wants to stay and I kick him out I say you got we're done we're in the trenches here we got to practice in an hour I said you got 20 minutes and away you go but you know what they're valuable they're valuable valuable people and where I think it really comes in is you know contracts and negotiations and evaluating players throughout the league and we have our own uh we have our own analytic tools and those are your eyeballs so don't be afraid to use those either
1: all right so there there's an NHL coach Jared basically saying it's it's more of a um you know it's more of a management tool and and look i think there's value they can reveal things i I personally think they can reveal maybe some things about depth players you know which third or fourth liner might actually be getting more done because their their names aren't on the score sheet um as, as much, but look, if you're a coach, and I made this point earlier uh, when I, I did a thing off the top of the show about how players often use disrespect as motivation, whether it's real or perceived or fabricated. But the ultimate job of a coach is to walk into a room with 20 guys in hockey and figure out how he can get them all pulling in the same direction on any given night. A manager might be looking at, at a more diverse information, like what the analytics guys are saying.
0: Yeah, it just you, you start to worry though, is that as soon as things become overly statistical in any field, you move away from like empirical observation, which is is what matters most. Watching the player, see how he actually plays, and a lot of the things like now in the NFL they have where they can, like they can uh, when the player sweats they can evaluate the sweat and seeing how, <laughs> see how much of the electrolytes they use, how many how many steps they take in a practice. And then they know when to, like, discard of a player when they think his knees may be breaking down or something like that. So,
1: it's, Well, uh, but here, here – I mean, I, I totally understand what you're saying, and, and I agree. I, are, I, are, I, I do think there are some people who have taken the analytics a little too far because you can't forget the human element. But let, let me use your example – what, uh, who was the coach of the Penguins back in 96? Was Bowman? Uh, I think Eddie Johnston. Eddie, okay. So uh, anyway, so let's say they they'd had that game here in Edmonton, and after the game, he gets um, a, a zone starts sheet, and he sees, oh, my God, I, I never gave Ron Francis a, a face-off in the offensive end. I know Ron's good in my own end, but there are some wingers I'd like to see them maybe start with the puck. So, you know, zone starts is one, one thing they, they look into. So I think sometimes they can maybe remind a coach of something or say, oh, geez, I wanted to use this guy this way, and, and in this game I didn't. Or maybe he looks at that game and says, wait a minute. Ron Francis uh, is, is getting killed lately in the defensive zone. I better give Mario some time there, so even though he's in his own end, the other team's worried just because he's out on the ice. You know, it's little things like that.
0: Little thing, but also I think that, uh, like from my experience, like playing or whatever, statistics can be used by coaches. You can twist them any way you want by only, like, dropping the context on everything. You know, like on contract negotiations, especially – Uh, when there wasn't as many, but plus minus was a big one. Right. And you can, you can make such a big deal of that. Uh, you know, but it's based on who are you on the ice against and everything. But, you know, it's, it's, it kind of, you can keep digging and digging and digging to prove your point. Sure. And, but my thing is that you can create like a framework that these are the statistics that matter and nothing else really does but
1: well yeah. and i i think that's fair you you're right and and one the one thing i always question is Corsi i assume you know that what that is right that counts shot attempts in hockey mm-hmm. whether they hit the net or not and i always say you know true if a team has 20 shot attempts and the other team has 5 clearly they had the puck more and the odds would suggest they're more likely to score but i always say too uh, a shot that goes wide to me is not worth as much as a shot on goal, even if it's a weak one, right? Nope. Like if you pass to me in the slot, and I'm all alone ten feet out, and I shoot it three feet over the net, like that should to me that should be a negative in my call up, right? Because I, was, yeah. I wasn't going to score, but I would get credit for a shot attempt.
0: But you look like someone like Taylor Hall, the defenseman. The teams know he doesn't have like the greatest selection of shots, so they let him in over the blue line. He gets a lot of shots because a lot of times you know, he doesn't have a lot on it. But a player like Alexander Ovechkin, they're going to tighten that gap quick because if they know if they give him the top of the circle, he can score. So there's stuff like that that, based on the skills of the players, that you know, you're know you going to give Taylor the whole room because he's not really that much of a threat to score with his shots. But Ovechkin, if you give him the top of the circle, he can score. So that's nothing really statistical. That's just more based on Ovechkin skills versus Hall.
1: And that's why Peter says, and a lot of coaches say, they don't want players thinking about the analytic stuff on the bench or on the ice, right? They want yep. them to, to play the game and, and play as they've been instructed leading into it. Jared, good call, man. It is an interesting It is an interesting, uh, is an interesting yep. debate for sure. I appreciate you listening. Okay, have a good night. All right, that is Jared, seven eight zero four nine is 8.42. Quick timeout, and then the coach of the uh, medal-winning men's 4x100 Canadian relay team, Glenroy Gilbert, when we get back.
3: This is Mark Latestu from your Edmonton Oilers, and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio, 630
1: Chat. NFL preseason note tonight. In Seattle, Dallas quarterback Tony Romo has left that game with an apparent back injury. Dallas is up 7-3 early in the second quarter. Uh, tonight, BC winning in Ottawa. The Blue Jays lose 6-3 on home turf against the Los Angeles Angels. Well, the uh, Olympics, a great Olympics for Canada, 22 medals, one of the medals for the Canadians 4x100 relay team. Glenroy Gilbert, former Canadian sprinter, is the coach of that team. Glenroy, welcome to Inside Sports. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing uh, very well. Uh, th- thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for joining us on the show. I-, I mean, certainly you'll have an interesting perspective on, uh, on what went down in, in Rio in general and certainly with some of the sprints. But uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, deep in your heart, you're, you're like a lot of us. You're just a sports fan. So <laughs> were you pretty thrilled with, with Canadians in Rio overall?
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, there were remarkable games for all the, all the sports, all the athletes and coaches that were there. Um, you know, 2012, obviously we did well, but we did much better uh, this this time around. So, of course, I'm, I'm ecstatic.
1: When uh, you, you're coaching relay teams and, uh, yeah. you know, it, it, it seems every year, Glenroy, every Olympics, every world champions, and, and it happened to Canada four years ago in London, at least somebody gets disqualified. I mean, is this one of the most technical Events is this one of those events where there's so many things that can
4: just go wrong in a relay? Yes, absolutely. It, it, it first of all, you're you're looking at you know 16, 16 men trying to get around the track, two two of them in each lane, and and these are big guys, and the lane is 48 inches wide, so they're trying to get through uh, the exchange zone where they've got to be careful of the inside lane line, they've got to be careful of the exchange box. There's a lot of things that can go wrong and it can go wrong very fast. So yeah, it's a very technical event when it comes to uh, making sure that that stick gets around the track and uh, and within certain confines. You're not allowed obviously to pass it outside that 20 meter uh, exchange box, but you can't touch it before it gets in that box. So there are many different uh, rules and athletes all have to be on the same page when it comes to running relays. And sometimes if you don't practice enough or uh, for whatever reason, the stress or whatever gets to athletes when they're out there and the pressure just takes the hole. So there's lots that can go wrong.
1: It must be, uh, it, I guess it's a bit of a juxtaposition here because you have to be incredibly fast, but I'm, I'm thinking when you're actually passing the baton, you might, you have to be very patient, don't you?
4: yes you have to be patient you have to have uh, pretty good timing uh pretty good rhythm and you've had to have worked together for a little bit because then i think when you do that there's a certain level of comfort that you have but again you're never fully comfortable because you also recognize that you're passing to someone else and you hope that they leave the mark on time you hope that they're patient uh you hope that they get out strong so that they give you some spacing so there's a lot of things that you're, you're hoping will happen, but I think when a team runs together often enough, uh, they can kind of do away with some of the mistakes that could happen.
1: What was the biggest strength of this year's Canadian men's team that wound up getting the bronze?
4: You know what? These guys, are, uh, they've, they've, they've all run relays before. they are uh, they're actually um, got quite a bit of experience in relay running. Uh, they spend spent a lot of time throughout the year uh, working together, so more time than than typical, and that's the key, right? It's always a challenge because uh, relay running is a team sport, whereas their individual races, hundred, two hundred, it's all about them. So trying to mix the two and making sure they do enough work together is always a challenge. But we were able to get together a few times this year, which actually made it much easier when we got to the Olympics.
1: When did you realize something might be up after the final? And that Canada, because the I was I was hosting this show while that was going on, so I was watching a lot of the replays, Glenroy, but with no sound. Yeah. And the first yeah. thing was that that shot that a Japanese runner uh, might have stepped out of his lane, and then it started right. to be like, oh no, it might be the United States. What was the process like? Right.
4: Well, you know what? It's funny because when when the race started, I again pins and needles, very nervous. Uh, when when the guys crossed the finish line, I thought Andre did enough to, to nip. The uh, the Japanese athlete, but he, he just didn't get there. I looked up at the screen. I saw we finished fourth because the numbers, the teams just kind of slowly come out on the on the replay screen. So I'm like, okay, it looked like we were fourth. I was I was very disappointed. I got to tell you, yes, it was a Canadian record, but I was still very disappointed because I thought we were ready to do something really big, uh, even even to beat Jamaica. We were that these guys are that good, um, <clears throat> but. When that didn't happen, I uh, I thought, okay, you know that's that's disappointing. I took I took a little bit of time before I got out onto the warm up track to kind of recover from it, and I was like, okay, well if that's what it is. That's what it is. I walked out, and literally within within two minutes when I got out there, someone said, yeah, the Japanese team was on the track. But then I, I was on the the inside lane line, but when I saw the video, they were on the straight line. Right. You, know, you can step on the straight line. You can't step on the curved line. So they were fine, and then somebody said, yeah, the U.S. may have tried to exchange the baton before the exchange hall, and that's a violation. So I was like, oh, man, if that's the case, this will be pretty uh, pretty special, you know? Um, and, and so it was. So, yeah, I was, I mean, disappointed for them, for sure, because I know they've had, and I know what that's like. We've had our bad luck when it comes to that, but at the same time, it kind of came full circle, and the guys ended up with a bronze medal.
1: Glenroy Roy Gilbert joining us on Inside Sports, coach of the Canadian 4x100 relay teams. Uh, look, I, I got to ask you about uh, Andre DeGrasse, and uh, mm-hmm. you know you were a, a, a teammate of uh, Donovan Bailey, and now uh, you know Andre has people mentioning his name in the same breath as mm-hmm. Donovan Bailey and all that kind of stuff. What you know, the, this guy he's, he's he's still young, and I guess three medals, but maybe the sky's the limit with Andre.
4: Yeah, I think uh, you you always have to think that at uh, 21 years old I think this guy is the limit. very talented uh, very talented young man. I mean the, the key obviously in in sprinting as in any sport is longevity, right? Uh you know you can it's early at 21 so we have to wait and see where he can go but based on based on the way this kid loves to compete, a very, very talented uh, young man and and pretty grounded for the most part. I think uh, certainly the sky's the limit and we should be seeing some great things from him down the road.
1: All right, I I, I have to ask you obviously about... uh the past a little bit I hope you don't get tired About talking about it I had I had Don Bailey on the show About a month ago When it was the 20th anniversary Of him winning the gold And <laughs> what struck me about Donovan Was he was totally convinced He was going to win that race He knew he was the guy to beat When when Canada went into the relay Back in Atlanta Did you feel You know we're the, we're the team to beat We're the top dogs here Because it was in America And the US relay teams Always do well And all that kind of stuff <laughs> How did you feel Going
4: into that one? You know what? I thought we were we were more than ready to run. Again, we had Donovan on the end of the relay. Um, we had Bruni running running third. Myself was on the back backstretch. So we really just needed somebody to push us off. And when Robert came in, it's funny because when Robert came in, he gave us just that little bit of spark that we needed. And I'll tell you, from the moment I touched the stick, I knew we had it. I knew that we were going to win um, the gold medal because I knew that if if we can get the stick into Donovan's hand with a little bit of a lead, there's no way anybody was going to come up and catch him. So, yeah, you, you, you tend to know when you start moving around the track that you've got it. It's hard to discern that right before, but we were a strong team, and we were ready for the U.S. We had listened to them talk the entire week, so we were more than prepared and ready, and we knew what was being said out there. Most people didn't believe we had a chance, but we did, So, and our coaches were fully behind us so did it help to feel a little disrespected maybe <laughs> it's a- absolutely absolutely that actually gives you power it gives you strength because you're just thinking okay well clearly these guys are uh, we had won the world championships a year before but the u.s had dropped the stick in that competition so most people saw it as well yeah you guys are world champions but you didn't really beat anybody so this was our shot to uh to beat the americans on uh, on their home turf and even though we were going through the rounds and they were way ahead of us, we still knew that in the final if we had the little bit of push we needed at the beginning that we would we would get the, like, the finish line for sure.
1: So what do you remember about when, when the race ends? And I, I often go back and now thanks to the internet you just watch it on YouTube and you got Don Whitman calling it and it's kind of like yeah. you can hear all the Canadians in the stands yeah. yelling at the top yeah. of their lungs, and everybody else is quiet. Yeah. What was it like in there? Yeah.
4: Well, well, that's what it was, right? It, it was amazing because you saw the Canadians, like you saw them in the in the stands, and you saw the maple leaf, like on on every corner of the track. You can see it. You can see it along the back stretch on the two corners. And we would, and it's funny because when we got out there, you could just see them waving and yelling. And most of these people, they knew our names. That's the other thing, right? So they knew the team that was on the track. And after we. Crossed the finish line, and one we took that that victory lap um, slowly, kind of jogging around the track with the Maple Leaf, and we stopped at. At every corner where there were pockets of Canadians and went right up in front so we can uh, we can thank them you know just from afar but nonetheless let them know that we really appreciated the support and and the strength that they gave us because it really made a difference when you're when you're competing in a stadium with 90,000 people to be able to recognize uh, you know patches of Canadians throughout the, the stadium it really makes a difference.
1: All right, Glenroy, and one final one for you. I, I always like asking uh, athletes who become coaches this question because I, I often get a very interesting answer. What's the transition been like for you? What's been, you know, maybe the best part, or just some of the day-to-day things you've enjoyed about that transition from athlete to coach? You know
4: what? It, it, the best part for me is is being uh, being able to help athletes who are going and navigating through sport the same way i did and and being able to impart some of my experience um to them and and being able to be there so that they can ask any kind of questions around And some of them do some of them don't but just being able to communicate a certain uh, expectations a certain um, calm that those athletes need to understand from being an athlete in the past and also from coaching now uh, just imparting my knowledge to them and seeing them flourish I mean watching those guys in uh, in London in London watching the disappointment living through that, and then coming back to uh to Rio and watching also how these guys how these guys performed and they did it for the guys who weren't there who weren 't able to get it done in two thousand and twelve so there 's a bit of a brotherhood there and a camaraderie with all these sprinters so watching that develop was uh, has always been fantastic for me.
1: Glenroy, it was fantastic, obviously, watching you during your career and now your impact as a coach has uh, led to some medals as well. Really appreciate your time here on Inside
4: Sports, man. Thanks, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Great stuff. That is Roy Gilbert, gold medalist at the 1996 Olympics, coach of Canada's 4 x 100 meter relay teams. This portion of Inside Sports presented by Action Furnace, home of the fixed right or its free guarantee. Visit actionfurnace.ca. I want to thank our other guests tonight. You heard from Jamie Nye, Stephanie Labbe, Rob Brown, Morley Scott. Thanks to everybody who called and texted as well. No show tomorrow, 6 o'clock pregame show for the Eskimos and Rough Riders. The game will kick off at 8. I will be back on Monday. Guests will include Olympic gold medalist in wrestling, Erica Weeb. The producer of the show is Dave Campbell. The studio producer this evening, Matthew Panaschuk. The Blue Jays lose 6-3 to the Angels in the CFL BC Beats Ottawa 29-23. My name is Reed Wilkins. Always a pleasure. Talk to you soon.